Thank you, Shelby. Good morning, church. How we doing? Uh, as a pastor, we just got back last night from um, a, all the Living Stones churches. Uh, we have five, we're going to have five churches starting this summer. We have four currently. And uh, all the pastors once a year get together to pray. And so we, we just got back from a, a few-day retreat where we just spent like hours on our knees praying for you. And I, I just want you to know that, like, you're loved by the pastors of this church, and I feel grateful to be one of your pastors. And happy Mother's Day. And I know that, uh, you know, some of you are here as guests today. You would normally not come to church, but Mom says, it's Mother's Day. You're coming to church. And uh, you know what? Thanks for coming. It's good to honor your mama. Way to go. You're winning at life today, all right? So uh, honor your mom today. Mothers, we do honor you. And uh, we are here today. I think one of the greatest things that we can do to honor you mothers is to, to call each other to focus on the work of God because that's why we're here as a church, right? That's what fills up our souls is focusing on the work of God. And we're doing that today from Romans chapter 14. So if you don't have a Bible, open, open it up to that, which is on page 948 in the Bibles around the room. Now, we're going through the end of Romans. We've been marching through this book for several weeks now, and we get to Romans chapter 14, and this section we're calling uh, Ordinary Christianity. You know, there's a temptation for all of us to think that in order for God to be pleased with you, you need to be doing something radical. Like, there's a temptation for all of us to think that God loves Mother Teresa a lot more than he loves all of us in this room combined. Like, isn't that true? Like, we tend to think like, oh, the ones who are like the superhero Christians and wearing that cross cape and doing all those radical things, those are the people that God loves. But the end of Romans reminds us, no, God loves all of us. His love for us is not dependent on what we do for him. It's just dependent on his love for us. And the way that we accept that and live for that is not by living radically. It's by living for him in ordinary life, eating and drinking and loving one another. And so Paul is addressing all these different ways to live out this Christian life and without a cape, <laughs> in an ordinary way. And we get to this section 14, and, and Paul is laboring. Paul is the guy who wrote this. He's laboring over this discourse of love. He's describing what love is. And it's very important for this because Jesus said this in John 13. It's gonna be on the screen. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says a new commandment. It's not because love one another is a new commandment in the New Testament. That was a commandment in the Old Testament. But what's new about this commandment is he says, as I have loved you, that's how you're supposed to love. And how did he love us? He gave up everything in order so that we could be brought to him. He loved us with incredible sacrifice. And and he says that by your love for one another, that's how the world will know that you're my disciples. So church, not by really awesome church services. Not by big events in the park. Not by great preaching. Not by incredible music. By love. How will the world know that we're his disciples? Love. 
And so that's why Paul takes a few chapters to talk about love. Now the question is, is how do we love each other when we don't like each other? (laughs) How do we love each other when we don't like the opinions that each other have? That's what he's addressing here in this section. And, and, And really what Paul is writing Romans 14 about is because like a Jedi master, he senses a disturbance in the force of love (laughs) in the Roman church. He hasn't been to the Roman church, but he has many people that he knows there. And somehow it's got, word has gotten out that there, this church is not loving each other in the way that it should. If you look right uh, at verse 13 of chapter 14. So by the way, if you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. Verse 13, it says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So this church is filled with separation. That word passing judgment means to condemn somebody and then separate yourself from them. And this church is separating themselves from each other. You guys, this happens in church, doesn't it? They're clicking up. They're wholly huddling based on non-essentials based on non-essentials, and they're passing judgment. Now, to be sure, in the Christian church, there are things that we're called to hold each other accountable to, but those are essential things. We call those the close-handed issues of the faith, the essentials, the nature of who God is, the nature that salvation is, is by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. We hold each other to those things, um, what the Bible describes as sin and not sin. We hold each other to those things. But there's a lot of things in the Bible that are left to a gray area that it might not speak super clearly on. And there's even some things in the Bible that God is clear on, but it's still not an essential thing. And God still causes allowance for people to Um, have different opinions on that. And that's what Paul is addressing. So the arguments that are going on in the church seem really silly at first, but I'll talk about them. They're things over days and diets. So what was happening is the church in Rome was made up of basically two main groups of people. People who had a Jewish ethnicity and a Jewish background and people who had a non-Jewish or a Gentile background. And those who had a Jewish background and then became Christians, they had grown up their whole life reading the Old Testament and living according to the Old Testament. And part of the Old Testament laws was that you had to acknowledge certain holy days and you could only eat holy food, what the Bible called clean food. And so there's all these lists. You guys have read Leviticus before and you're like, I don't understand why God hates selfish. Like, why can't we eat pork? And there's all these things that, God said, you're not allowed to eat these things because they're not clean foods. Now, in doing so, we don't know why God picked those specific foods. But we do know this, that the reason that God was forbidding some foods as not clean is because he wanted his people to know every time they ate that they needed to be cleansed if they wanted a relationship with him. And those foods were meant to be a foreshadow for a need of great cleansing. And in the New Testament, what do we see? That that cleansing has come by the blood of Jesus, amen? That you're not cleansed by what you eat. You're cleansed because Jesus got off his throne in heaven, became a human, and then died on behalf of your sins. And so in the New Testament, Jesus actually gives allowance to start eating those foods because he knows that what he's come to do is cleanse us of our sins. But those people who had grown up in a Jewish background 
still had trouble. I mean, they grew up this their whole life. Even though now Jesus has said, it's now okay to eat pork. They were like, I don't know. Like, I, my mama always said, I won't honor God if I eat pork. You know, it's Mother's Day, so we got to honor mom. <laughs> and so they had a hard time accepting that new freedom. And so Paul in this section calls those Christians weak Christians. Now it's interesting because there's a paradox. The weak Christians are the ones who have the stronger conscience. But the free Christians are the ones, the, the strong Christians are the ones who have a more biblically liberated conscience. They feel free to eat what God has made clean. But there's, con- there, there's this conflict happening over diet. There's conflict happening over diet. Now, um, you might say, well, that's not happening at our church. We can just glaze over and skip this chapter and move on. We have many separations, not about diet, but over other things, don't we? What are some things that separate Christians from one another? Did you say gluten? (laughs) Okay, diet. That is true. That is true. That is very true. (laughs) I am 50% gluten. (laughs) Intolerant. All right. We, uh, We separate over silly things, though, still, don't we, today? We separate over, we, we pass judgment, I should say, over silly things sometimes. And sometimes we're, we don't think that they're silly because we have strong convictions about them. For instance, what holidays are acceptable to celebrate? Is it okay for Christians to go trick-or-treating? Some in this room say no because you're participating in an evil holiday. Other people say, yeah, you're absolutely allowed to do it. I, you know, you're still as an adult going trick-or-treating. <laughs> Can Christians drink alcohol? And if so, how much? (laughs) What kind of movies is it acceptable for Christians to watch? What kind of music uh, should we be listening to? Um, there's, There's things that we separate on all the time that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak clearly towards. And, and the reality is, is that all of us are on a different stage in our relationship with God. And so we're going to have different opinions about those things. And a lot of times those things cause us to separate. So how do we deal with the conflict of these things? How do we deal with the conflict of these things? Well, I like how Augustine said it. He said, when you are dealing with these conflicts... What you need to do is, is when, when on the essentials, you need to have unity. On the non-essentials, you give each other liberty. But in all things, you act in charity. So there's some things, the essentials, we need to be unified on those essentials. What the Bible is very clear about, those close-handed issues. But then there's other things that we're like, I'm not really sure. We have different opinions on. And on those things, we give each other liberty. You give each other freedom. But we're always expected to be willing to lay down our freedoms in an act of charity to love each other as brothers and sisters. And so the real thing that Paul is trying to say in this is this. Love doesn't trip up, it builds up. Love doesn't trip up, it builds up. And so we're going to ask three questions as we walk through this text, just really unpacking that concept. So the 
the, the first question we're going to ask is just, what is this passage meaning for us? So let's look at it together. We're going to walk through verse by verse. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Um, there's a play on words in the original language, which is Greek. He's saying, if you read it in the original language, it's don't pass judgment on one another. Instead, make this judgment to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Um, the church was separating itself over matters of these opinions. And so Paul here is addressing the, the strong, and he's saying, here's what you need to do. You need to stop passing judgment on each other, and you need to have more of the attitude of not wanting to trip them up. It's not worth the fighting. It's not worth the division. You need to stop majoring in the minors. And, he's, and, and he says, don't put a stumbling block or a hindrance. Um, in this passage, your relationship with God is described as a walk, a walk with God. And a stumbling block is a rock that's thrown into the middle of a path with the intention of trying to trip that person. Um, or the word hindrance actually is more accurately translated as trap or snare. And as Christians, we shouldn't be living in relationship as the church trying to trip each other up because we want to use our freedoms. We should have the attitude that we're saying, I'm willing to lay down my freedoms to make your path easy with God, to make your path easy with God. So then he says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So when he uses this word unclean, you can also put in the word unholy. He says nothing is unholy in itself, but it is unholy for anyone who thinks it unholy. Now, to be clear, he's talking about food here. He's not saying like, hey, I do whatever you want. There's nothing unholy. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about food here. He's like, there's no food that's unholy in and of itself. Jesus has made all food clean. Amen? Bacon is clean. Hallelujah. There's no food that's unholy. But he says, but it is unholy if somebody is convicted that it's unholy. And so when we think about these other matters, like you think about what holidays, can you go trick-or-treating or not? Paul is saying, you know, trick-or-treating in and of itself is not unholy. But if somebody feels like it is and they feel like they're not honoring God, for them it is unholy. And so you need to give each other the respect to acknowledge that somebody may feel really convicted about it, and for them it is sin. For them it is sin. And so we need to also allow that for, for some things, for some of us in this room, we may have no problem participating in it. And then for others of us in this room, we may have a big problem participating in that. And he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's like, so first of all, this has an assumption that the church is eating together. Actually in relationship together. That should challenge us a little bit, shouldn't it? And so what they were doing is when they would gather, they would often eat. And, and so um, what he's saying is they were gathering in people's homes. And so there were some people who had freedoms like, yeah, we can eat pork and scallops and, uh, you know, lobster. But they knew that there were other people who were gathering who felt like eating that was sin because it was unclean according to the laws of the Old Testament, but also because in Rome, 
pretty much all the meat that you could buy had already been sacrificed to pagan gods. And so these people felt like eating that food was causing them to participate in demon worship. But these people who were free or the stronger Christians were coming and flaunting it and be like, it ain't my fault if you don't like lobster, don't eat it. There's more for us. And he was like, that's not walking in love. That's being a jerk. Like, you could also just say for this whole passage, don't be a jerk. (laughs) Walk in love. Love has the other person in mind, their well-being. Love doesn't trip up. It builds up. It builds up. And he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That word destroy, is it goes along with the analogy of a snare. If an animal is caught in a snare, it'll trip them up and they can even just die. It it will severely harm them. Um, Don't severely harm your brothers and sisters because you have a difference of opinion. Because Christ died for them. Don't destroy the one who Christ was destroyed for. Then verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying, if you're unwilling to let go of these food things, these freedoms, you're not understanding the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not about you having your freedoms. The kingdom of God is about us living righteously and goodness. It's about us living in peace and harmony with one another and in joy in the Holy Spirit. They're missing the point. They're missing the point. He says, for whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And so in that, those two verses, what he was saying is, so if it's really true that we need to be walking in love together, if you serve Christ by making sacrifices for your brothers and sister, you're pleasing God. You're pleasing God. That's what makes God smile. And if you not only lay down your your life and your freedoms for your brothers and sisters, not only will God be pleased, but you're also going to please men. You're not going to have this conflict that's going on in the Roman church. This is what it means to be a servant of Christ. You see, the problem is these guys were wanting to act more like lawyers than servants. And I think that happens a lot in the church, don't you? It's so easy. We walk into church and we just start sizing each other up because it's, it's much more fun to be a lawyer than it is a servant. But God, to be one of Christ calls us to be a servant. And in verse 20, he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. The work of God in this passage is, is the work of God in the church. Do not destroy over food. So, okay, he's contrasting the, to those things. The work of God, which is incredible. God is saving people. He's revealing himself to people. He's drawing sinners to himself. That's amazing. And yet, Their little divisions is causing people to uh, not want the work of God, to reject the work of God. It's it's disrupting the work of God because God's called us to love one another. He says, everything is indeed clean. There it is again. All the food is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So he says, look, the food you eat, it's all good. It's all clean. It's all unholy. I mean, all holy. 
you're, you're good to eat it. But it's not good if you have a brother or sister who feels like in you eating that, you're causing them to sin. It's not good to make them sin. Well, then what would be good? Here's what would be good. To forego eating. To forego eating meat at all. To forego even drinking wine. Now, here it's not for the sake of the alcohol content because the Jews and the Romans both drank alcohol. It was for the sake that wine in Rome, it was already offered to pagan gods. And so they believed that in drinking it, you were worshiping those gods. So, but think about that level of sacrifice that Paul is calling them to. These guys are like, they're meat lovers to the degree that they're fighting over it. And he's saying, it'd be better to give up meat and become a vegetarian. Like as a carnivore, that hurts me just reading it right now. <laughs> that is a sacrifice. And you may be somebody who's like, you know what? I love, I, I love these freedoms that I have. I love, you know, drinking alcohol. Yeah, but if it causes a brother to stumble, it's better to give it up. I love smoking cigarettes. Well, if it causes a brother to stumble, it's better to give it up. I love celebrating these holidays. Well, you know, if, if you're in a group like, a, like one of our community groups, and you guys love Halloween, but you have a few people in there that it really bothers, don't have a Halloween party. Because it's better to give up your freedoms for the sake of love. Because love doesn't trip up, it builds up. And then so he says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. The church should be known not for trying to trip each other up. We should be known for building each other up in Christ, encouraging one another, helping each other along. That's what we should be known for. Then he says in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brothers to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. He's like, if you have these freedoms and you feel like it's okay for you to participate. That's awesome. Just quit flaunting it. Like, you don't need to be posting on Facebook your freedoms in the face of those who totally disagree. I mean, I think we need to hear this politically a little bit too. Like, the church shouldn't be known for like, I'm going to flaunt my, my beliefs and my opinions politically, even though I know there's brothers and sisters sitting next to me in church who are on different sides politically. That's not acting in love. That's causing each other grievance and to be tripped up with each other. And that's not how we're supposed to be acting. Um, don't flaunt your freedoms because it hurts people's hearts. Consider them first. And so he says, keep it between yourself and God. So when he says the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. A lot of people pull that out of context and they say, we're never supposed to share our faith. That's not what he's referencing. He's referencing the faith that all things are clean that these things are acceptable, the faith in these freedoms. And then in verse 23, he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So some of you are in here and you're like, you know what? I just feel like, like you might even be somebody on this. He was like, I'm a, vegetation, uh, I'm a vegetarian. We are what we eat. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian and, and I just feel like I'm being passed judgment on because I don't feel like it's right to eat meat. Well, here's what you need to know. Number one, the Bible says it's okay, but you shouldn't, if, it, if you feel like it's wrong and it's dishonoring to God, the Bible says right here, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So for you, it is. 
So you need to be listening to your conscience on that. You need to be listening to your conscience on that. And so when you're approaching these freedoms, don't feel peer pressured. I'm like your mom. Don't feel peer pressured into doing what all the other Christians are doing. If you feel like it's violating your relationship with God, then honor God. Because at the end of the day, as Paul said up in verse uh, 11, you will stand before God. And so your job is to honor him in all things. And so if you're one of the Christians who are like, who you enjoy your freedoms, stop trying to peer pressure the others who don't have those freedoms. Because love doesn't trip up, it builds up. But why is this so hard? Let's, let's step back and ask that question. Why is it so hard to live in this kind of way? I think there's four reasons. Number one, it's because we have a tendency to view church as an event, not as a family. We come here and we sing our songs and we raise our hands and we think it's a place we go, but we forget that God doesn't call the church an event. He calls it a family. We're brothers and sisters. That's the language of this. And I think if we could just remember more that we are brothers and sisters, we would be more willing to love each other. We'd be more willing to understand, isn't this what you do in a family? You wouldn't know the weaknesses of your family members. You're not pestering them all the time. Well, you shouldn't be. Okay, so the second reason why I think that this is so difficult is this, is because as Americans, we love our freedoms. We love them. A lot of times we love them more than our brothers. If you have a freedom that you're unwilling to lay down for somebody else in the church, you have to ask yourself the question, am I really free? Because if you're unwilling to lay it down, if you're like, I can't lay that down, I'm not gonna lay that down, you're not free, you're a slave. Even if it's a good thing. And so having freedoms means we're also free to be able to lay them down because we love our brothers more than we love our freedoms. The third reason why we have a challenge with this is because sin is deeply embedded into our hearts. Sin is simply becoming self-focused. God created us to be in the image and likeness of God. And what that means is God created us to be like mirrors that are angled kind of up so that his image would reflect down to us and then we would proclaim that image to the rest of the world. But Augustine said that when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, we took that mirror and turned it inward. And so now we're only focused on ourselves. We're only focused on ourselves and that's what sin is. And when you understand that sin is deeply embedded in your heart, then you understand that you can't fix this problem on your own. I think one of the reasons why we struggle with doing this is because we've turned Christianity into something that we need to do by trying harder. But Paul doesn't say that. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be a part of the kingdom of God means you know that you can't do this on your own. You need the Holy Ghost. (laughs) You need the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit empowering you to do what Jesus did, which was lay down his freedoms for the sake of those he loved. We need to do this on our own. And then the last reason why we really struggle at doing this is because we have a really hard time truly understanding grace. Here's what I mean. You can't read chapter 14 out of context. It only takes, you know, 
you to be in kindergarten to know that chapter 14 comes after chapters 1 through 11. And chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans is what? About grace. It's all grace. Grace is the reality that we have done nothing to earn our relationship with God. Nothing. And if you think that God well, like, was looking down from heaven and being like, oh my gosh, that person has such a good heart. I'm going to make them my child. You're really kidding yourself. Because let's be honest, we can't even live according to the own standards by which we judge other people, let alone God's perfect standard. Grace is the reality that all of us have gone astray. In Romans 1, Paul says that we've all started valuing created things as if they were creator God. We've built our whole lives around them. I mean, we have cell phones in our pockets that we have our whole lives centered around. The average American is on their cell phone seven to nine hours a day. We've turned created things into creator. That's not the only thing. There's lots of things. We, we, ha, we have dishonored God in that way. Chapter two says that we've tried to add to his gospel by trying to add rules to it. We're constantly rebelling against him. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans three, it says. And so what this means is this. In Romans five, it says that we're enemies of God. We've kind of got this attitude in our heart saying, you know what? Forget you, God. I'm gonna do things my way. That makes you an enemy. But the good news of the gospel is this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The saying is trustworthy that Christ came into this world to save sinners. Not good people, sinners. And what that means is this. If we know Jesus, it's because God did all the work. Even the faith we have, Ephesians 2, says that that was a gift that God gave you. He opened up your eyes, and he gave you the ability to put your trust in Jesus. But that can be scary sometimes, and here's why I think it doesn't apply. Um, I'm going to use a quote from Tim Keller's book in in the book uh, Prodigal God. He was telling uh, his church about this idea of free grace, that we don't do anything to earn love from God. He just simply loves us and sacrifices himself for us. And she said, this lady in his church said, well, that sounds really scary. And this is his quote. It's going to be on the screen. He said, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. Sounds kind of like a silly thing, right? This is what she replied. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. So what is this understanding is when you really understand grace, you also understand, yeah, God could ask me not to eat meat for the sake of my brother. God could ask me to lay down my freedoms for the sake of my sisters. There's nothing he can ask. Grace is the free gift that costs you everything. It's free for you, but when you really get it in your heart, it demands your whole life. And that's the good news of the gospel, that we have done nothing, and yet God still loved us. And if you're here as somebody who's not a Christian, and you thought Christianity was about the things that you have to do to impress God, that is not Christianity. That's some other wonky religion. Christianity is that God has loved you while you're a mess. 
And he died for you while you were his enemy. And he wants to adopt you into his family simply because he loves you. This is why we sing. This is why we raise our hands. It's not to raise the roof. It's because we want to give praise to God. This is why we cry. Christians get weepy. (laughs) Because we know how much we didn't deserve the love. But here's the thing. If we didn't do anything, then God can ask everything. So how can we actually live this life of sacrificially loving our brothers and sisters? We have to meditate on the sacrifice that Jesus has done for us. Look at what it says. Um, It says, do not destroy, in verse uh, 15, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In this whole passage of do's and don'ts, Paul puts right in the middle of it, he says, I want you to remember that Christ died for them. The problem with the Roman church is they weren't living uh, as if they were caring about each other. They weren't caring about each other. They weren't loving each other. And Paul puts on their mind, you have to remember that Christ died for them. He paid the infinite cost for them. When, when somebody who is buying something purchase it, purchases it and then lends it to somebody else, you expect that that person is gonna take great care of it. And the more expensive the purchase, the greater expectation of care, right? Like think about a car. You bought a car, you've been saving up your money, you bought a car and your friend says, I need to borrow your car. And you give them your, the keys. You expect them not to trash it or crash it, right? Like you expect them to take great care. Now, let's say you won the lottery and you bought a Lamborghini. And then you give the keys over. <laughs> you expect them to take a lot more care of that, don't you? Because the greater the cost, the greater the expectation. And Paul is calling our minds to the infinite cost of Christ giving his own blood. This wasn't just God saying, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go out of my way a little bit. God gave everything to treasure his people. And so in other words, we need to stop treating his treasure like trash. And we need to be willing to consider like, okay, God gave everything for you. I need to be willing to lay down my freedoms for you. These things that don't really matter. These things that don't really matter. And so, We need to meditate on this. We need to chew on this. The word for meditate in the Bible is literally chew on it, to to feast on it. It's only by feasting on the sacrifice of Jesus that any of us will start to live sacrificially. Have you ever noticed that you smell like what you eat? In World War II, if you watch documentaries about uh, the soldiers who fought in the Pacific, they, they could say they would march through the jungles, and though they couldn't see or hear, they could smell the enemy on both sides. Um, when I go elk hunting, sometimes you can't see them, but you can smell them. Today's Mother's Day, and we're going to barbecue today, and in the Basin household, we like to use garlic, and sometimes I get a little uh, zealous with the garlic, and it tastes great, but we pay for it for like a week afterwards. <laughs> Because you start to have the aroma of what you feast on. And Paul is calling our attention over and over and over again to the sacrifice of Jesus in this book. Because he knows that if we feast on the sacrifice, if we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus, we'll start to have the aroma of that sacrifice for one of another. We'll start to be the aroma of Christ. We'll start to be willing to lay down our lives and our freedoms for the sake of others but we have to feast. And, you know, it's no coincidence that before Jesus died on the cross, he gave us a feast. 
he gave us the meal of communion. And what is that meal a reminder of? The great length of Jesus' sacrifice. So as you take the bread, it represents Jesus' body that was hung on a cross where he would be cursed by God. As Jesus hung there, he wasn't just a physical death that was a problem, as he was absorbing the wrath of God for sinners. And then the, the wine represents his blood that he poured out for sinners so that you and I could be forgiven. And as we feast on that week after week after week, there's no way you can stay the same. Nobody who has truly meditated on the sacrifice of Jesus walks away more selfish. So how do we start laying down these freedoms? It's only in getting Jesus deep into our hearts. And so if you're like, I really don't want to do this. I really struggle with, you know, disagreeing and passing judgment. The call for you is not to try harder. The call is to meditate longer. Feast on the sacrifice of Jesus. Then and only then will you be motivated to start to give that kind of sacrifice to others. And what if we could do this? Our world is so fractured, isn't it? I'm getting kind of tired of it. It's like you turn on the news and everybody's fighting all the time. And, you know, there's all these different sections just divided. Families are divided. Like, what if we could become a church that's known for being willing to lay down our freedoms just to be unified? As living, let's be honest, as living stones, we're known as a church in the valley who loves our freedoms. What if we were known as a church who loves to lay down our freedoms? People would come running to Jesus. Because there's nothing like that that exists in this world, except it should be in the family of God. So this is our call, to not seek to trip up because we have strong opinions about things, but to be willing to lay down our freedoms to build up. Are you willing to make those kind of sacrifices? This is what we're called to do. Lord, help us. (laughs) I know for me, you know, as I was thinking about this last night, there were several things that you pressed me on where I have not done this well. Several conversations, several people have left the church because I was stubborn about my freedoms. And I'm sorry for that. I pray, Lord, that you would show me the the depth of your sacrifice even deeper today so that I would be able to love these people just like you do. God, we can't do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would just give us the kind of spirit in this church that is almost like just crazy. Like, yeah, we love giving up things if they cause other people to stumble because we love them more. Give us that kind of love and glorify your name through us. In Jesus' name we pray.